I'm wrapping up this Christmas series today. Call it the Wild Goose of Christmas. It's drawn from the Wild Goose Chase book by Mark Batterson. It's, it's really a book that just impacted me in a very, very particular way. Um, it's about following the Holy Spirit and the fact that that's a pretty scary thing to do. Following new roads and new rivers isn't safe, but it's right. Even as we take the final breath of our life and the new roads and the new rivers lead us into the unknown of eternity. Even that's scary. We, I think we all try to pretend that heaven is a very predictable place. And it's not true. It's just not true. We know very little about what heaven is like, actually. And I would even venture to speculate that risk and adventure are going to be part of our life in heaven. What a thought. It's hard for me to imagine a sedentary retirement life for eternity, Charlie. I just give me a chainsaw. We're all going to have perfect bodies, like Dory, peace, health. God's going to use that. God gives us hope for something. And it's not just for a few years on this planet. It's for eternity. And I don't think it's safe. I love the exchange between Susan and Mr. Beaver in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mr. Beaver is telling her about Aslan the Lion, who is an allegory of Jesus. And Susan says, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. Isn't that precious? Life isn't safe. It always ends in death. I've noticed that. Hmm, it's not safe. It always ends in death. I don't know if you've noticed that or not. And death is almost never easy. Oh, there are a few stories about death being easy. Not many, a few. Most of the time, death isn't easy. There's a reason for that. Because in the Garden of Eden, when there wasn't any death, you got imprinted, programmed for eternal life, not death. So death is naturally hard for us to deal with, hard for us to grasp, hard for us to do 
because it's contrary to our most ingrained motivation. And it is the motivation, the imprint within you, to live forever. That's within you. It's within every person. Today I'm focusing on another challenge in the wild goose chase. And this will be the last one I'm dealing with. Fear. Just fear. I say just fear. Fear is a, an incredibly morphing, difficult thing to nail down. I once talked to a, a, a doctor about cancer who was involved in cancer research, and he said people think there is a cure for cancer somewhere, and he said it's, it's not true. Because he said the problem with cancer is the way it shifts and morphs and changes and actually evolves itself into a different species so that we have to go at it from a different angle in a different way. There isn't just one cure. Fears like that. But I'm, I'm talking about a fear today that paralyzes us and dictates our decisions. I'm not suggesting that we go harem scarum through life with all kinds of risky, foolish moves. I'm just referring to a calm expectation that I think is possible for all of us to have. And it is that God is sovereign over the lives of His children. That's pretty straightforward and pretty simple. Um, as has been the case with the COVID epidemic, there is smart fear that is intelligent and cautious, but there's a line where we cross into being controlled by fear. Listen to this. We stop thinking and we start reacting. Remember recently when I talked about Pavlov's dog? It's called conditioned reflex. Conditioned reflex. It's when you do something without thinking about it. And that's the kind of fear that's dangerous. And I see it at large in our world today. I do. But fear itself is a natural thing. It can preserve your life. <laughs> I've been in some situations where I was very afraid. And fear kicked me into a gear of life preservation that I'm very thankful for. But allowing fear to dictate our decisions is dangerous because it leads to unwise decisions and it leads to decisions that are harmful to us in the long run of life. When I thought about it, I realized that the Christmas story is packed full of decisions that didn't make sense, that were decisions made when someone counted the cost but refused to let fear dictate their decision-making. 
Yeah. As I thought about the main characters in the Christmas story, I remembered how often God's messenger angels would come to them and say, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. So I went back and I read the accounts again. And I realized something that in all of my years of studying the Word, I had never really noticed or thought about. I've always thought about the angel saying, don't be afraid, because they might be afraid of the angel. I don't think that was what it was all about. I read it again. Every one of those people, it's either mentioned or they had a good reason by deduction to fear something. Something besides the angel. I don't think the angel is just saying, don't be afraid because you're scared of me. In fact, we have many other examples in the Bible where angels are seen, like Abraham, for example. He just said, thought it was two men walking up to him. Stopped and had a talk with him. Where angels have appeared and it didn't create great fear. Hmm. But in the Christmas story, the phrase, don't be afraid, is repeated over and over again. I've never counted it, but um, Rick Warren says that that phrase is 365 times in the Bible, which is one for each day of the year. I don't know if that's true. It's interesting, though. I think he was saying, I think the angel was saying, God understands your fear, but don't let it rule you right now. Don't let it rule you right now. And their fears, as I looked at each individual in the story, I saw that their fears were fears that we all deal with or have dealt with or know we might deal with. In other words, they're common to our human experience. Look at this. Zacharias feared that he was too old to fulfill God's purposes. This is from the message. Unannounced, an angel of God appeared just to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was paralyzed in fear. Your prayer has been heard. Elizabeth, your wife, will bear a son by you. You are to name him John. Zacharias said to the angel, Do you expect me to believe this? I'm an old man and my wife is an old woman. Hmm. He feared he was too old to fulfill God's will. Joseph feared change. Joseph feared risk. I'm an orderly person. Judy could tell you my life is lived in a very orderly way. I value order a lot. But you know what I've learned about myself and I've learned about order? You can be too orderly. You can demand too much order of yourself and of others. And you become driven by the need for order in your life. Joseph was such a man. I totally relate to Joseph in the Christmas story. Because he was required to do things that he had never done before. And they seemed totally out of line with what he believed was the right thing to do. 
Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. It says he was a just man. Hmm. The word just means he was a man of the law. He was a man of custom. He was a man of rule. Not only a man of rule, but an enforcer of rules. Not just order for himself, but order for others in the way that he saw order should be done according to the law. And here he is required to do something very contrary to the orderliness that he demands of himself and that he demands of others. Joseph, <laughs> he feared change and he feared risk. I understand that very well. Mary feared what was ahead. I understand that one too. She feared the unknown. She feared how things were going to work out. I understand that, don't you? Luke 1, it says this, and this again is from the Message Bible. She was thoroughly shaken, wondering what was behind a greeting like that. But the angel assured her, Mary, you have nothing to fear. God has a surprise for you. You will become pregnant and give birth to a son and call his name Jesus. What an interesting word, surprise. God will have a surprise for you. You're going to get pregnant without ever having intercourse. That's a surprise. <laughs> You're going to get pregnant without ever being into the fullness of married life. That's a surprise. Mm -hmm. God sometimes brings frightening surprises into our life. The shepherds also were told not to fear. Now, these guys, these shepherds, I want to describe, I did some research on these shepherds. These shepherds faced bears, lions, and other dangers all the time. They lived out in the wild with a slingshot and a stick. Most of them didn't even have a blanket that would go over to be propped up like a tent, a, a simple tent. They had a blanket that they rolled up in at night. They ate anything they could find. Most of them um, had very little to eat. And not only were they tending the sheep constantly, but they were looking for um, any creature that they could kill with their slingshot and eat it that day. They were ruffians. They were considered bad boys, mostly. And the normal people had very little to do with them. So I think their fear in finding the babe was, why us? They were skeptical guys. They lived. They lived by their sensibility of what's going on, not being trapped, avoiding consequences. The normal people don't even like us. 
What's this all about? Luke 2. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were greatly afraid. These are guys that face bears and lions and all kinds of dangers. And they're all of a sudden afraid. Then the angel said, don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy. I'm not trying to trap you. I'm not trying to trick you which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But why us? Why would we be in the middle of this? Sounds like a trap. Everything within Joseph saw reasons not to become involved with this pregnant young woman. Everything. Everything in his life stacked up against becoming involved with this pregnant young girl. Of course he feared what it would mean. Of course he did. But the promise of the Messiah, which came to his heart, trumped his fear of entering into something that was totally unlike him, and it led him forward. Mary's heart trembled with fear, trembled with fear when she was told what was happening. The Bible says she was troubled by the angel's words. The word troubled there, I looked it up, it means to agitate with alarm. To agitate with alarm. The word says she couldn't believe what the angel was telling her. The angel said, don't be afraid, don't let fear rule you right now. It's not wrong to be afraid. But it's wrong when your fear displaces your faith. That's why the Bible says, whatever is not of faith is sin. If we go down the path of fear and we let it rule us, it leads to sin. The journey to Bethlehem was not safe for Mary and Joseph. But there was no way around it. Even for a woman nine months pregnant, the Rome was ruthless. I was interested in that because I'd never really looked into it before. Would a nine-month pregnant woman be required? Now, Mary was from the same place that Joseph was from, Bethlehem. So would a nine-month pregnant woman be required also to go for this tax census? The answer is yes. Rome said everybody and Rome meant everybody. Sometimes on your wild goose chase, you're going to have to do certain things that will be fearful, that will not be safe, but it must be done, and there's no other door out. And Gary's law in those times is, take a deep breath, pray hard, and step through the door if that's the only one you have. But we tremble. We tremble. The escape to Egypt, which Mary and Joseph made, wasn't safe at all. But it was driven by desperation to save that baby's life. Do you think they feared? Oh, I think their hearts were pounding with fear. 
as they made that escape to Egypt. The wise men's journey was not safe at all. Nothing about the Christmas story is safe. Nothing about the Christmas story is risk-free. That's why at every stage and with almost every character or set of characters, we find the Lord saying, don't be afraid. Don't let fear rule you. They had to be told that. Joseph had to be told that. Mary had to be told that. Zachariah had to be told that. The shepherds had to be told that. The wise men had to be told that. Christmas is not a safe story. It's a story of overcoming fear in each of the hearts of each person in the part that they played. You see, courage, courage isn't courage. We think about our soldiers on the battlefield. Courage is not something that's just displayed on the battlefield. Courage is not something that's just displayed in the hospital ward where our doctors and nurses are walking the hallways that are um, haunted with COVID-19 and facing that every day. Courage is not just when a, a prowler enters your home and all of a sudden something has to rise up and something has to be done. Most of our fears are deeper and quieter than those fears of dramatic moments. When, um, when, like Mary, we face a village of friends and relatives and try to explain that we're mysteriously pregnant and the explanation sounds more like a Disneyland, a Disney World special effect than it does reality. Or like Joseph, to take the risk that no one would recommend to him. No one would recommend that risk to him. But alone, in the fog of doubt, in the fog of fear, you take a breath and you say, I will face this giant. I'm going to walk in and turn the light on. I think the devil always overplays his hand. I've seen that through the years. The devil always overplays his hand, and I believe this epidemic could result in bringing the church to look a lot more like the book of Acts. We've had a lot of American church, haven't we? You know what I mean? It's led us to uh, showmanship. It's led us to performance. It's led us to a darkened congregation with all the lights on the performers so that we become spectators to their great talent and their beautiful presentation. <laughs> I, I, for those of you who haven't heard this before, um, just I'm going to repeat it. When Gene and I were in our last time in California, we revisited the church that we had pastored in Eureka. And they built a new sanctuary. It's very beautiful. And I'm very proud of them. It's a great, great church. 
And um, so we're sitting, actually, I think on the back row as we visited there on a Sunday morning. And she's kind of scrunched down in her seat, and I can see her looking up like this. And I thought, and I saw, I just leaned over and I said, what do you think? She said, this pastor has 22 stage lights on him. Do you think that's enough? <laughs> it made me laugh at the time. <laughs> you think that's enough? <laughs> She'd counted them. <laughs> 22 stage lights. <laughs> We've had that. We've had American church that depends on numbers. We've had an American church that is based in public relations. And advertising and fundraising campaigns. We've had American church. Yeah, we've had it. Yep, we've had it up to our eyeballs. And you see, the reason your stomach kind of lurches at that is because it's all based in fear. It's all, hmm, I'm not even, I'm going to say largely based in fear. Fear that we won't succeed. Fear that we can't measure up and our reputation is on the line. Fear that the competition is going to get ahead of us and we're going to lose our grip. Fear that we won't stay current enough with trends and fads and technology. Are these not the things that the American church is largely based upon? It's all based in fear. Fear that our message isn't positive enough and won't draw a big enough crowd. Fear that our facilities don't have a coffee bar or in today's world, and this is the truth, a wine bar. Yeah. And with every step of fear, we become more and more distant from God's heart. But I believe, and we'll see, if this epidemic is driving the church, many more churches, toward a simplicity that looks a lot more like Acts chapter 2. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. They had good doctrine. And they stayed steadfastly tuned to it. Then fear, a godly fear. In fact, later on it says... People didn't necessarily want to join themselves to them because there was great fear among the people. But those who did were really committed. Sounds like a good thing. Then fear came upon every soul, but many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together. They were together. Wow. And they had all things in common. And they even sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all because people had need. 
So continuing daily with one accord in the temple. So they got together. And eating from house to house, they ate food. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. I'm so glad it didn't say they fasted from one house to another. You know, it just, it, it just eases me. It's kind of like that scripture about bats in the Old Testament. Don't eat bats. I don't have a problem with that, you know? It's like I'm real, I'm real good on that. Eating from how, and I can do that. I can be obedient on that one. And they had fun together with simplicity of heart. Sounds really good, but it doesn't sound a lot like American church. Praising God and having favor with the people and the Lord added to the church. Those who were being saved. Got saved, they said, come on in. It's not talking about numbers. It's talking about those who needed to be part of the church and those who didn't become part of the church. See, what we have in the church today is a whole bunch of people whose commitment is about that deep and about a mile wide. Sorry to say. There's a very shallow depth of commitment. And that's why staying at home and watching the service, eating a donut, is very appealing. And, and many people are going to stay right there. It's great to see the Trevinos with us today. We've been praying for you guys. And I understand. I totally understand the whole health issue thing. And there is, there is nothing in me that belittles that at all. And I'm not aiming at that. But I'm just saying we can get into a groove of being spectators and be driven by fear to, to have no real participation in the church. Right, Noe? You said that to me last time we had lunch together, I think. Yeah. And that's the wild goose chase that Judy and I are embarking upon. And we'll just see what God will do. I, I want to take your attention now to another young man who was willing to just see what God will do. His name is Jonathan, son of Saul in the Old Testament. The godless Philistines seem to be beating God's people up at every corner in every way, taking advantage of them, ruling over them. God's people fought their battles with slingshots and bow and arrow. And um, a, a big part of the reason was that the Philistines had a tie-in with the Hittites, and the Hittites at this time were very advanced in metallurgy. So they knew how to put metals together and make metal hard and make things like spears and arrows and things like that. The people of Israel didn't have that knowledge and they didn't have those items and the Philistines were ruling everything with their big weaponry as it was in those days. Hmm. They also controlled the trade routes coming in and out. And it included a pass that was called Mikmash. Mikmash. Um, here's a description of that pass from the Bible. There was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. And the name of one was Boses and the name of the other, Sene. Um, I've got a picture of what is probably Mikmash in today's geography. Can you pull that up for me, please? 
Okay, this is, this is probably the pass. And you can see there's a trail going down at the bottom of the pass. And it was very difficult, and they could very easily guard this place, the Philistines. So on the left side is where the Philistines were. Um, and Joshua is with his servant, and he said, they know how to guard this pass, but they will totally be unexpected for anybody to climb up there and to confront them. So, there was a desperate need for a wild goose chaser. Yeah. And Jonathan was a young man who said, let's try and see what God will do. His strategy was one of risk and surprise. Just risk and surprise. So, in 1 Samuel 14, 1, it says this. We have 1 Samuel 14, 1? We don't. Okay. I can find 1 Samuel 14, 1. Oh, okay. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that's on the other side. But he did not tell his father. He didn't tell his father. Hmm. Why do you think he didn't tell his father? What was he doing at this time? He's the king. What was Saul doing? Well, it's in verse 2. And Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. So Saul is sipping his pomegranate martini. I don't even know what I'm talking about there. But he's sipping on his pomegranate martini with 600 men uh, thinking about something, whatever, I don't know, but you know, after all, we could watch TV or we could just relax. Now, Jonathan is not stupid. Jonathan was not stupid. He knew that climbing these cliffs would be totally a surprise to the Philistine garrison. It was about 20 in a garrison of Philistines. And that if he and his armor bearer could surprise them, it would give them a great advantage in this situation. And that possibly they could actually win this battle. I've been reading a book, just as an aside, this is, when I start ad-libbing like this, I get into trouble. But, uh, because later on somebody said to me, you shouldn't read that book. Well, anyway, I've been reading a book. What are you going to do, fire me? I've been reading a book. Uh, <laughs> You can't quit me, I'm fired. Um, by Bill O'Reilly, called The Killing of Crazy Horse. Very interesting book. And um, one of the things that made the, the uh, Native Americans so dangerous, so stinking dangerous, was that they weren't afraid to die. That's what made them dangerous. So when Crazy Horse, and I think it was eight of his guys, his, his best warriors, are coming up against a group of about 90 cavalry men, American cavalry men, Crazy Horse is sitting there, and he says to his men, this is a good battle. I feel good about this. Yeah? It's a good day to die. In fact, he said to Big Nose, who was one of his lead guys that was really, really a great warrior, 
He said, I just want you just to, just to tick them off. Go and just ride your pony around them and just let them shoot at you. That was his assignment, no way. I'm not kidding you. This is real. This is real history. Big Nose looks at it. He says, you got it. He kicks his pony and he goes, boom, all around. He gets shot at all the way around. He comes back. Crazy Horse says, good man. He got shot at. They don't know how many times the guy got shot at. Everybody missed. He goes all the way around, comes back again. They're going all the way around. They're just not afraid to die. That's the thing about them. So Jonathan says, I think if we surprise these guys, two of us might be able to win against 20 of them, and that will open up this pass, and that will maybe start a breakthrough. Maybe it'll be a domino effect. So he counted the cost, he weighed the options, he considered the outcome, and then he got agreement with a partner, and that was his armor bearer. His armor bearer in this story is such a vital man in his role. And so this is what the Bible says. So Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. It may be that the Lord will work for us. I love it. He's like six. He's like crazy horse, you know. Yeah, maybe. For nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. God can do it with many or He can do it with us too. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then. Here I am with you according to your heart. Man. Who You want to have that kind of agreement with a partner with you. You want to have that kind of agreement with your husband or your wife. You want to have that kind of agreement with someone that will be a prayer partner with you when you're on a wild goose chase. You need to have that prayer partner. Follow your heart, man. I'm with you. And in verse 23, it says this, So the Lord saved Israel that day. In other words... That tilted the whole thing in another direction, and God saved Israel that day. I love Jonathan's attitude. Maybe the Lord wants to use us to turn the tide on these Philistines. See, see, that's what you use when you get to be my age, 73. That's what you lose if you're not careful. You start losing that sense. See, see, I know, Phil, I know that's why you go out to the sidewalk in Planned Parenthood. I know. I understand it. Because you don't want to lose that. You lose that, you die. Next step's heaven. That's okay. That's good. There's risk involved. There's adventure involved in heaven, I believe, but that's good. Maybe the Lord wants to use us. The Lord can do it by many or by few if we're willing to just give it uh, sanctified push. <laughs> Is that biblical language? I don't know. And his armor bearer said, just follow your heart. I'm with you. It's precious. In the early 20th century, there was a group of missionaries that became known as one-way missionaries. I don't know how many of you um, church historians have, have read about these missionaries. 
Strikes me as something, Timothy, you would have read about. One-way missionaries. They packed all their earthly belongings in a coffin. And they sent them to the mission field to which they felt called because they knew they would never return home again. They got a one-way ticket to go, and they knew they'd never come home again. One of those missionaries was a man named A.W. Milne, M-I-L-N-E. And he felt called to a group of headhunters on the islands of New Hebrides. New Hebrides is now what we call Vanuatu, which is down near New Guinea in the South Pacific. New Hebrides. All the other missionaries before him had been martyred there, but A.W. Milne felt called to that place. And so he went, and for some unknown reason, he survived for 35 years. He stayed there, and he never returned home. And when the New Hebrides natives buried him, they wrote on his tombstone, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. I'm not sure what cliff you need to climb. I'm not even sure what cliff I need to climb. But I know that every one of us needs to keep that edge in our hearts and being in God's will. I know Judy and I are called to a path that is less safe. But like Jonathan, I think God's in it. And we are praying that his help will come to us also. Very, very few of us are called to be one-way missionaries. Please, Lord. But is fear caging the wild goose in our life experience, the Holy Spirit. Is fear caging that? One thing has happened in this pandemic that I've seen clearly, and I'm, I'm referring to that in all of the message today, and it is that a spirit of fear has been released in the whole world. In the whole world. The Bible says in... 2 Timothy 1.7, but God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a power of love, of a sound mind. But many of us haven't noticed the context of that verse. We quote, we, we quote it over and over, but many of us haven't noticed the context. What it says just before that, what Paul was talking about. Paul was dealing with Timothy's fear of using a gift that was hidden within him, which Paul knew was there because Paul had been used to lay hands on him and impart that gift to him. And Paul knew it was there. But it had been covered in his life. That's what he was dealing with. And so Paul said this in verse 6, the verse just before it. He said, Therefore I remind you to stir up the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. 
God has not given you, Timothy, a spirit of fear. There is a gift within you. And until that gift is released, you're not going to walk in power and the fullness of love and a sound mind. A sound means a clear, disciplined way of thinking. It's as simple as that. It's not going to be released if you're continually bound up in a spirit of fear. And it's hid under the ashes of your heart. All the places that have been burned over. All the places that where, where fires have burned through. He makes beauty in those places of ashes. But we have to overcome the spirit of fear in order for that to be brought about. A lot of us have those ashes in our life of burned up things. Vision that's been burned up. Hopes that have been burned over. Dreams that have been burned over and there's nothing but ashes there. Things that we thought were really of God and it's been burned over and there's nothing but ashes there. And we just feel the loss of that and the spirit of fear keeps it buried. God has not given you spirit of fear, but of power and love and calm and disciplined thinking. Question, what has been buried in your heart by a spirit of fear? What has been buried in your heart by a spirit of fear? Think about the application of this to your own life. And if you can pinpoint something that a spirit of fear might be burying in your life and that it needs some resurrection like Lazarus from the tomb. Can you imagine how dead that man was? You know, at that point in death, your heart becomes hard. Very hard. And that hard heart of Lazarus when Jesus told him to arise. Imagine it in that corpse wrapped in those grave clothes and that heart began to quiver and be awake again. Yeah, that's what God is doing in His people today. If you become aware of that, we're not talking about deep sin, I'm not talking about you going astray and doing something stupid. I'm just talking about a place that got lost somewhere along the way. And you know a spirit of fear was part of that. When that happens, and you become aware of that, just stand up. Just stand up. Lord, I pray that your hands will particularly cover every one of those standing with me today. I'm one of those standing too, Lord. Because I realize how much fear is ruled in my life. Fear of my age. Fear of my hearing getting worse. Fear of my faculties. Fear of my thinking being clear. All those things that come with getting older. Hmm, Lord. I pray that you would do a supernatural work of peace and freedom because I come against, in the name of Jesus, the spirit of fear that would dilute our heart passion, that would keep us from seeing things like you're seeing them, 
that would cause us to step back and say, um, I don't think God's calling me forward. Hmm. Lord, deliver us from that spirit which looks at Michmash and says, I guess the enemy's just in charge right there. We're not going to go through that passageway. Lord, let our hearts be freed to give that sanctified push like Jonathan did in the direction of the very thing that has held our hearts captive by fear. And in Jesus' name, let no condemnation rule us because of the past, because the enemy wants to point out everything that you've done wrong, every mistake you've made, every misstep, every speed bump along the way, and the bigger things, of course, all those things, and say, who do you think you are to go up on Micmash? Who do you think you are to climb up that cliff? You haven't proven anything great. If you're so smart, why aren't you rich? <laughs> And the enemy wants to speak that to our hearts, and we rebuke that spirit of fear in the name of Jesus. And I rebuke it in every one of those Zooming today also. All those who are Zooming with me right now, and they're in their home, and they're saying, yep, me too. I speak that over you as well right now in the name of Jesus. Be free from the spirit of fear. I'm not talking about doing crazy things, but I'm talking about having that firm and calm confidence that the Lord is in charge and you are going to be able to do what God has called you to do. You're all right. You're all right because God's all right. We're all right because God's all right. Amen.